Gentlemen, it's a privilege for me to be with you in these uh, hours that we have in the afternoon here. I'm reminded of the fact that uh, there are three things that people have determined are the three most difficult things in life. And I'd like to begin by reminding you of those. One is to climb a fence that is leaning towards you. The second difficult thing in life is to kiss a girl leaning away from you. And the third difficult thing in life is to speak to an audience right after lunch. <laughs> and I am engaged in one of the three most difficult enterprises of life, and I understand that. When I was uh, younger, I was sent by the navigators to work with the Bible translators, the Wycliffe Bible translators, in their jungle camp in uh, Chiapas, Mexico. And when I was living down there, they would meet in the congregations. The Indians would meet for oh, six, eight hours at a time. And the reason for that is they would start maybe 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and go until maybe 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And uh, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little less. But the, um, the reason was that they had such a long distance to travel. They'd have to walk from their various villages on into the, the church and meet there. And so there were marathon sessions, much like we've got on our hands today. And they, what they would do is when they get tired is they would, uh, it, was, it was a really a no-no to fall asleep. So what they would do is they'd stand. And they'd shift feet and kind of walk around and so forth. And then they'd sit back down again and they get tired, they stand back up. And I thought to myself, uh, evangelical Christianity in the United States could really learn from that. And so let me encourage you, if you get tired, to stand and um, go get a cup of coffee and meander back. Uh, don't worry about distracting me. I don't know where I'm going anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, What I'm going to do is um, cover the session, in this session, um, the question of why go to work. I'm sure there are many of you who have gotten up in the morning and asked yourselves that very question. Why go to work? Labor and its counterpart, leisure, it's certainly a strategic question, particularly for the conscientious believer. A large part of our days are given to work, and if Christianity is relevant, it's got to be applicable to this important area of our lives. And yet, I think all of us would agree that many people, Christians included, would rather do something other than their vocation. Uh, with longing eyes, they look forward to the day of retirement, or at least to the weekend, or possibly to the chance of getting a different job. Most men do not enjoy their labor. If they had their druthers, they would do something else. What does the Bible say to this? How do we, how do we address this from a biblical perspective? That's the task that we have before us. And I have identified, they're not by any means exhaustive, 
But I have identified nine principles regarding labor and leisure. Five on labor or work, four on leisure. I, I think you're going to find these uh, a little controversial. As a matter of fact, uh, maybe a better word is stark or uh, jarring. And um, I say that not because I personally feel that they are, but rather because that is uh, the response I have gotten as I have shared them uh, with men like yourself. And what I would like to do is, is handle our time together a little bit differently than the morning session with Gail. In that, I would like to encourage you to interact with me as we go along. And as questions arise in your mind, let's talk about them. And if it's something that will be covered later, I'll mention that to you and we'll just postpone it. But by and large, I think we're going to find that uh, the questions that are generated in your mind are questions that we can address and interact with as they come up in your mind. So let me encourage you to do that. We will adjourn, if I understand it correctly, at 4 o'clock. We'll make a break or two sometime between now and 4. And uh, like I say, if you need other breaks, you be sure and uh, just get up and take them. Um, and in all probability, we won't cover all nine of the uh, principles. And uh, I don't want that to be an impediment to asking questions or interacting. Uh, if we get to the end of the afternoon and we've not covered all nine principles, then I'll simply state them to you. And uh, you can uh, reflect on them and pray over them and work through application on them as uh, time and opportunity permit. So with that in mind, I'm wondering if you would bow with me in a uh, word of prayer in hopes that when I'm done, you won't be sound asleep and we can get started. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of interacting as a band of brothers around a source of absolute truth. If truth were not absolute, if there weren't verities in our lives, then there'd be scant reason for our spending a day like this. But because you've been gracious in giving us your infallible word, and then beyond that, the presence of your spirit in our lives, we're able to gather together to interact with one another and to learn. And we pray that the spirit of God would in a very special way be operative in our lives that you take the truth of the Word of God, unchanging in its application, and make permanent change in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. I mean, as we look at the Bible, we get mixed signals regarding labor. Let's take a look at some passages. And what I want to do as we move through these principles is ask you to I'll read the passages of Scripture, and so I'm going to call for volunteers, and if you'd raise your hand, then we'll circle back and ask you to read it. Who will take Genesis 2.15? All right, Hank. And then the man in the mustache right in front of him, I don't know your name, but would you take Genesis 3.17-19? through 19? Then who will take Ecclesiastes 2.18-24? to 24? Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 24. All right, thank you. 
Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 12, and 13. All right, in the back there. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 18. Great. All right, let's start with Genesis 2, 15. If you'd read real loud so everybody can hear you, please. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Okay, so we see then that before the fall, man was placed in the garden to work it and to take care of it. God ordained work for man prior to the entrance of sin into the world. Genesis chapter 3, 17 through 19. So we see then that man continues to labor after the fall, but he labors in difficulty. It doesn't produce easily. It requires toil, sweat, hard work on the part of man. And yet we see also how fortunate we are to have work, how terrible it would be if we had to live out our three score and ten years with absolutely nothing to do. You get up in the morning, there's no place to go, there's nothing to do. You go to bed at night, you get up in the morning, the same thing, day after day after day. Man is fortunate that he has work. Work is an expression of the grace of God. Now this mixed signal between the good part of work and the bad part of work is also seen in Solomon's writings in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's take first Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 24. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because of all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Okay, Solomon says that labor requires pain, toil, strife. Labor means that you lie awake at night thinking about it and the decisions you got to make. And to top it all off, the thing that really frosts me, says Solomon, is that after I'm all done and accumulated all my wealth, I leave it to some misfit who blows it. He says, that really gets me. But notice what else Solomon says about labor. 
chapter 3, 12, and 13. Okay, so he sees that labor and what labor produces is a gift of God. And he says basically the same thing in 5.18. Who has that? Then I realize that it is good and and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his uh, toilsome labor uh, under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. uh, For this is his life. All right. So this set of mixed signals that is illustrated in the writings of Solomon show us that all of us approach our labor with kind of a bittersweet attitude. And as we recognize that, we want to draw from the Bible some basic principles that will guide us. Um, what does a biblical mindset regarding labor look like? And that's what we want to take a look at in the time that we have together. I'm going to give them to you, as I said, in the form of principles. So principle number one, and what I'll do is comment on it, and again, as that generates questions in your mind, let's interact on it. The first of the principles is, you do not work to earn a living. It is God who provides. I'll repeat that for you. You do not work to earn a living. It is God who provides. Somebody who enjoys reading and does it fairly well, I'd like you to read. This is a, uh, one of the longer portions that we're going to look at. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Who will take that? Okay, Ben, I see you back there. I'm going to volunteer you since nobody raised their hand. Philippians 4.19, who will take that? All right, great. Ben, you're on. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. This is such a familiar passage, I'm sure, that even as Ben was reading it, you turned on your spiritual uh uh-huh. And you thought, oh yeah, I've gotten through that one numerous times. But I want you to go back and grab a hold of the significance of what Jesus is saying here. 
Now that word anxious, be anxious for nothing. The word means to care. He says, when he says, don't be anxious, don't care for it. Don't be concerned about it. Take no thought for it. Don't let it even be a consideration or a factor in your thinking. And what he's saying is, I don't want you to care for or think about or be involved in what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear. That's how the heathen think. But you're different, said Jesus. And by way of illustration, he says, I want you to look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the fields, which today are and tomorrow are cast into the oven, will he not more provide for you, O ye of little faith? The, the logic of the Lord Jesus is irrefutable. He says, now think about it. Here you've got something temporal, something that lasts but for a moment. The grass out in the field, the grain. We grab it, we grind it, we cook it, we eat it, and it's gone. If God provides for it, doesn't it stand to reason that He'll provide for you who are of infinite value, who are eternal, who are His children, who are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Therefore, said the Lord Jesus, I don't want you to be occupied with your concerns, with your thoughts. Don't be anxious over your needs. You do not work to earn a living, men. You work for two reasons and two reasons only. Number one, because God gave you work to do. And number two, because it is an environment, and let me say parenthetically, not the only environment, but a strategic environment. It is an environment in which you represent Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I want you to be preoccupied with the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. I, said the Lord Jesus, will assume responsibility for every other need you've got in your life. Take no thought for those needs. Occupy yourself with a singleness of focus, with a singleness of purpose, as Gail was talking to us about it earlier today. Occupy yourself with the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Now the Apostle Paul echoes this same theme in Philippians 4.19. Who has that one? I want you to notice the Bible never exaggerates. Paul doesn't say, my God shall supply some of your needs. My God will supply most of your needs sometimes. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Every need you've got, God says, I'll provide for you. Let me illustrate where I'm coming from on this. Supposing a pastor said to you, to be very honest with you, the reason I went into the ministry is to get rich. And I work very hard in the preparation of my sermons, and I deliver them, because I'm hoping that 
the better the sermon, the greater the offering. And the greater the offering, the higher my salary. And I want to build the biggest church in the state of Louisiana in hopes that you'll be favorably impressed and keep upping my salary so that I'm making buckets of money. As a matter of fact, when I go out to speak, I evaluate the opportunities to speak on the basis of the size of the honorariums I am promised. Because my objective in the pastorate is to get rich, filthy rich. Now, if your pastor said that, what would your response be? I think I'd probably be safe in suggesting to you that uh, you would not be favorably impressed with that kind of a response. You'd probably be saying to yourself, he's in the wrong business. He is preaching the gospel for the sake of filthy lucre, as Peter describes it in his first epistle, chapter 5. And the reason I mention that by way of illustration is that the only difference between you and your pastor, if you're biblical, is how the ministry is funded. Because you are in full-time Christian work just as your pastor is in full-time Christian work. The only difference between him and you is how the work is funded. And if it is wrong for the pastor to evaluate his vocation in mercenary terms, I want to suggest so also is it for you. You do not work to earn a living. You work because God gave you that as an environment in which to represent Jesus Christ. You are his ambassador in the context of the calling or vocation to which you are called. Now, a frequently heard objection to this is Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, where in essence Paul says, If any would not work, neither should he eat. As one person said, no working, no eating. And that is absolutely correct. But Paul is not arguing here that we work to eat. Otherwise, he'd be taking exception with his own words as well as the words of our Lord Jesus. Now let me remind you, men, that there are a number of what I would call one-way streets in the Bible. By that I mean you can go one direction, but you can't go the other direction. Let me give you just two of those illustrations. The Bible says that you're to love your wife. Now, if you divorce your wife, you do not love her. But because you don't divorce your wife doesn't mean you do love her. It's a one-way street. Let me give another illustration. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that understand drunkards, idolaters, and immoral people will not, I repeat, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are a drunkard, unrepentant, habitual drunkard, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, says the Apostle Paul. But that does not mean that if you're not a drunkard, you go to heaven. That's a one-way street. Here we have another one of those one-way streets. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. But that does not mean you work in order to eat. 
You don't work, you don't eat. But the reason for your work is not in order to eat. Now, God may provide for you through your vocation, and he may not. That is up to him. But you don't work in order to eat. You're all familiar with the story of the Italian who came over to this country and was asked, or he became a millionaire and was asked how he made it. And he said, well, he said, to be honest with you, he says, when I got off the boat, I had just a couple of dollars. So I went out and I bought a batch of bananas and I sold them one at a time. And I uh, made a little bit of profit and went back and got a little more fruit and sold it and saved and worked and saved and worked and saved. And finally, I, uh, I bought a cart. And I had a lot of different fruit on the cart and I drove that, pushed that little cart around and I sold fruit and I saved and worked and saved and worked and saved and worked. And finally, I opened up a little store. And boy, I worked long and hard in that store as I had all kinds of produce and things in it. And I worked and I saved and worked and the years went by and I worked very hard. And one day my aunt died and left me a million dollars. How hard you work and where you get your money is not necessarily related. And we'll be talking about that in the next principle. Let me suggest to you, men, that if you don't understand this, if you believe that the providing for your needs in the final analysis is your responsibility, then your attitude toward others in the marketplace will be to use them rather than minister to them. Then you will view your clients, your prospective customers, your employees or your employer, as the case may be, your colleagues, your co-laborers, you'll view them as a means for meeting your own needs. And as Gail was talking to us earlier today, you'll manipulate them, you'll use them to try to serve your own best interests. And I want to remind you this afternoon, you cannot use people and minister to them at the same time. You've got to make up your mind. And as you're out there in the marketplace, you've got to ask yourself, am I here for the purposes of using those people in order to help me gain wealth? Or am I here in the marketplace for the purposes of ministering to them? And if you believe that you work in order to earn a living, there is no way in the world you're going to be able to minister to those people with whom you interface on a day-by-day -day basis. Done.
Yeah, I understand you. Okay, the question, men, is supposing you're out there in the marketplace and people begin to sense that this is your mindset and they start taking advantage of you. And uh, you don't use them, but they start using you. And they misuse you and they abuse you and uh, don't pay their bills. As you men know, I work with business and professional men. I've been doing this for a number of years, and a while back, I got a telephone call from a very, very close friend of mine, who also, by the way, Don, happens to be an attorney. And this man is, uh, uh, is in the title business and uh, also does some real estate work. So he says, Henriksen... He says, I, I need your counsel. I got, I got a situation I need your counsel on. I said, well, tell me about it. We'll call him Joe. He said, well, uh, he says, I, I put this real estate deal together for a guy and, and worked on it. It's taken me about uh, oh, 12, 14 months to do it. It was, it was a big project. And uh, we agreed upon it, coming into it, that my, uh, my fee would be $85,000 for that. And he said, I put a lot of time, a lot of effort into that, worked very, very hard on it. The deal is finally closed. And uh, the people involved said, Joe, what we want to do is we want to give you a piece of property in payment rather than the cash. And they offered me this piece of property, and I knew that the piece of property was worth. And so I said to them, the property is worth maybe seven, $8,000, not $8,500. And uh, they said to him, yeah, Joe, we know that. We understand that. And uh, Joe said, well, you have to explain this to me. Uh, how am I supposed to respond to this? And they said, well, uh, we just feel we want to pay you that. And he said, well, is it because you didn't feel I was doing an adequate job? Did you, did you think I kind of let you down? He said, no, no, we thought you did a very fine job. Then why? He said, well, coming out the other end of the deal, we just feel that's a lot of money and we don't want to pay you that much money and this is about the limit of what we want to pay you. So he said to me, Henriksen, what should I do? Well, I know this guy fairly well. And I said, you don't need to ask me that question. What I want to know is, what did you do? <laughs> and he said, well, he says, I took a long walk around the block and prayed and thought about that. And I thought, you know, God never promised me that I would not be abused or misused. As a matter of fact, He promised me just the opposite. The thing He did promise me was that He was going to beat my, meet my needs. And I have to be honest with you, He has done that exceeding abundantly above all I could ever ask or think. And I've concluded that if I took him to court and got involved in litigation with him, the whole issue would begin to blur. And there'd be recriminations on his part, and he'd begin to charge me with doing an inadequate job, and I would be, and we'd go back and forth in this thing, and the further into it we would go, the more he would justify in his own mind that he was right and I am wrong. And I don't want that. What I do want 
is an opportunity to influence him with the gospel. Right now, he knows that he is wrong. And I want to leave him there. Because God is going to give me in a day an opportunity in which to capitalize on it for the sake of the gospel. So I think what I'm going to do is take his small piece of property worth about seven or $8,000 and let him have his day, confident that God will meet my needs, praying that God will give me an opportunity to influence him with the gospel at another time. I thought to myself, wow, well, I'm not sure I'd be able to respond as objectively because $85,000, I don't know for you, but for this skinny little kid here, that's a lot of money. Just an awful lot of money. Now, I mean, I'm not saying to you that you should not or cannot take a man to the mat in violation of an agreement. But I would suggest to you that as you take him to the mat, you wrestle with the question, as I fight him, do I have his best interest at heart or do I have my best interest at heart? And if you're motivated by your best interest, then I would simply encourage you to go back and look at it again. It's like God told Moses, and Moses told the children of Israel in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And I'm not saying you never fight. I'm not saying you never take a man to court. I'm not saying you never confront with sin or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm simply saying that you've got to ask yourself the question, is that motivated by my best interest, by the Lord's best interest, by his best interest? And make your decision on the basis of it. There's a question over here. Yep. Oh, okay. And then he gave you a piece of property for seven thousand dollars. That's what I said. Okay. Well, I thought you misstated eighty-five thousand, and actually the agreed upon part was eighty-five hundred. And I was sitting here thinking, well, wow, eighty-five thousand. But then when I started thinking eighty-five hundred, it was almost oh, well, you know, that's not that much. I mean, it's a lot compared to eighty-five thousand. So it's almost like, well, this is okay, but over here will be a Yes. What do you have any degree of responsibility to hold another person responsible if you think that's in their best interest? Do I have a responsibility to hold another man responsible if it's in his best interest? I would say categorically yes. That's that is a motive and a motivation issue you've got to wrestle with. You bet. And that's not easy. Especially when we begin to delve into the murky arena of our motives.
Okay, Don's question is, you know, are there any limits to that? Do you just kind of throw yourself to the wolves and let them have at you, or are there some lines? And I think that's a... Uh, Obviously, there's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to do it here or there. You draw the line at this particular place. This is between you and the Lord. But going back to the principle, you do not work to earn a living. It is God who provides. If you really believe that, if you, if, if, if you really believe that that is true, then your decision is not going to be made on the basis of that. Then your decision is not going to be made on the basis of that's not good, sound business principle to do that. I mean, that's dumb business principle to do that. So the question you've got to come back to basically is, do I really believe axiom number one? I do not work to earn a living. It is God who provides. Do I really believe that? Or to put it more bluntly, do I really believe the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, I don't want you to even think about or take into consideration your needs. Focus in on the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God and let me take care of those for you. Do I really believe that? And then you go from there. Yes. Remember, I mentioned to you, going into this, that these principles are stark. And I think Gordon introduced it as being controversial. I'm simply saying to you, if you understand the principle, when you go into the business deal, you don't go into the business deal with the idea of making money. You go into the business deal with the idea of ministering as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in full-time Christian work. That is the arena that God has given you to be his ambassador. He said, I'll provide for you. You don't go into that business deal with the idea of making a profit any more than I came to Covington looking for a profit. That's what we're saying. Yes. If God provides, and you have two similar individuals of Christian orientation in the same arena, why does God provide many times more for one than the other. Okay, if God provides, and you've got two men living in the same arena, why does God provide more for one than for another? Let me answer it this way. There is an unequal distribution of resources by the living God. There is an unequal distribution of gifts and opportunities by the living God. 
Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. There are some people who are born into wealth and there are other people who are born into poverty. In the New Testament, gentlemen, note it well, in the New Testament, wealth is neutral. It is neither good nor bad. It is neutral. And God brings some men into wealth and he brings some men into poverty. And it doesn't mean he loves the former more than he does the latter. Wealth is neutral. Wealth is a resource in the hand of the living God to accomplish his purposes according to his own sovereign goodwill. And we deceive ourselves if we believe that the United States is more favored in the sight of God than Indonesia. That simply is not true. Now the reason for the unequal distribution of resources, this is my conviction, Now, the reason for the unequal distribution of resources, this is my conviction, and I'm not, I have no license to be right, so I want to say it up front. But I am convinced that the reason for God giving the resources unequally is to keep us all dependent upon Him. The wealthy are dependent upon the living God in regard to the discharging of their stewardship as they give of their resources. The poor are dependent upon God for the meeting of their needs. If the common good was equally divided among the common man so that nobody had any more or less than anybody else, then man would have no need to be dependent upon God. Ben. Okay, Ben's question is a very legitimate question. Actually, it's a two-pronged question. One is, how do you reconcile this with the statement in 1 Timothy when he says, he, that does not he who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel? And secondly, how would this principle ring in the ears of the Ethiopian who happens to be going through famine and is in the process of starving to death? That's your question, is that right? Okay. Let me give you another one-way street. I am responsible for meeting the needs of others, but I cannot look to others to meet my own needs. I've got to look to God and God alone for the meeting of those needs. 
I am responsible to meet the needs of my wife. But I cannot look to my wife to meet my needs. If I look to meet my, look to my wife to meet my needs, I will jeopardize the relationship, probably destroy it. Because whenever I look at my needs, I always look at them with unrealistic expectations. Let me illustrate for you. Think of the interpersonal relationships you have with people. Most of those relationships, if you're really honest, you'd say to me, Henriksen, I give more to that relationship than I receive. Don't mind doing that. Don't misunderstand me. Don't mind it. But that's the fact of the matter. With my wife, I give more to that relationship than I get. A lover would have a no other way. But that's really the truth of the matter. My kids give a lot more than I get. At work, you bet. Man, I give a lot more than I get there at that job. Don't mind doing it. But that's really the truth of the matter. That is our perception. If we were to ask our spouses, they would say to us, well, the truth of the matter is, I give to that marriage a lot more than I get. I love him, don't mind doing it, but I really do. Our perception in life, with few exceptions, and there are some exceptions, is that we give more than we get in our interpersonal relationships. If we look to others for the meeting of our needs, then we'll always feel that we come out at the short end of the stick. That's why the Bible talks constantly, Old Testament and New Testament alike, regarding looking to God for the meeting of our needs. Psalm 84.11. No, it's not either. I can't remember the reference. But, My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. My soul, wait thou only upon God, only upon Him. The fulfillment of my expectations can only come from Him, from no other source. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4 and so forth. So, the verse, he that does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. I am, the onus is on me to meet the needs of my family, but I never look to the family to meet my needs. It's always a one-way street. Now let's take a look at that Ethiopian. Let's set him aside for a moment. Let's take a look at Ben Jones. And let's say that Ben Jones, with the same biblical convictions that you have right now, finds yourself systematically going out of business in the oil, in the oil business, all right? And every day you get poorer and poorer and poorer. Work as hard as you want. You're still getting poorer. Believe that you're going to work to earn your own living, but you still get poorer. Work 20 hours a day, but you're getting poorer and poorer and poorer. You understand where we're going? Now, your, your children are dead from starvation. Meg is in your arms, and she's dying of starvation. And you're reviewing... Matthew chapter 6. And you're reviewing Philippians 4.19. And you said, now God, <laughs> you said that you were going to provide for my needs. All my needs. 
richly all my needs. And God, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I have to say to you, I, I just don't see my needs being met all that well. As a matter of fact, I've lost my kids, I'm in the process of losing my wife, and I'm next. Now, gentlemen, you've got one of two conclusions you can come to. You can either say, God did not meet his end of the bargain. Period. He said something that's not taken place. That's a distinct possibility. You can come to that conclusion. In which case, with your last dying breath, rip the page out of your Bible and burn it. Or, or, you can conclude that your need is best being met by going through the process of starvation. And you say, how can that be in my best interest? And that is where you defer to a loving God who has your best interest at heart. Those are the only two choices you've got. So Ben, I would suggest to you that the problem in Ethiopia is no different than the problem of any man at any time in his life, depending on the sojourn through which God brings him. Or to put it another way, the question of, do I work to earn a living, is not answered by the Ethiopian starving. Because he's not working any less hard than you and I. We still come back theologically to the question of, is God sovereign, that is, in charge, and does he have my best interests at heart? Would you agree? Say it one more time. <laughs> Whether or not you embrace the principle, I do not work to earn a living, it is God who provides, you're still faced with that Ethiopian who's working every bit as hard as you are, is every bit as holy as you are, and is still starving. And ultimately, it is the theological question which rests on two, two basic premises. That I've got a God who is in control and that he loves me and has my best interest at heart. And that somehow, as I am in this pile in the process of dying, that is in my best interest. Yes. Let me let me follow up just one more sure. clarification. Uh, in my teaching of the scriptures and teaching on vocation and work, I give as one of the reasons to work is to make a living. Now, are you? I mean, I'm kind of making this thing real simple here, black and white. Are you saying that that principle and precept that I've been putting out on the table is wrong? Yes. Yes. Hank. 
Ben's question about the youth opening, but I've always taken it, uh, the, the scripture we just read is Matthew, and, and I just want to know if I've been wrong in this, is that if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you won't start with it. And then you can go to the bank on that. That doesn't mean your idea of what you should, what you really need, what you're going to get, but you're, going to, you're not going to start that. You need, as God turns you will be met, so you will not die starting. And you can, you can, uh, Okay. Wait, if you believe that, then you got to say God is visiting his wrath on a godless people in Ethiopia. Okay, uh, let, me, let me get it on the tape, because I promised uh, the guys when we were starting this that I would repeat the questions so that the guys who buy the tapes would know exactly where we were. You only have to repeat the good questions. <laughs> the, the question uh, was asked, um, can we take a look at passages like Matthew chapter 6, and conclude that if I seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that God will make sure that I have enough to eat and enough clothes to wear and a place to live. And I would say, no, you cannot conclude that. I don't think... I would feel comfortable saying to the man who is starving, who loves Jesus and has his hope in the eternal, the reason you're starving, friend, is because you're not in the final analysis truly seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I just will kind of choke on that. How do you get around these things will be provided to you? Yeah. The question ultimately always comes when I say, what does it mean that these things will be provided for you, is who gets to determine what that looks like? Does God get to determine it, or do I get to determine it? See, let, let me remind you, gentlemen, that that's where Israel was constantly crosswise with God. You see... God had Israel's best interest at heart. He says that again and again and again. Israel had Israel's best interest at heart. Israel said that again and again and again. Israel's best interest, therefore, was never an argument between God and Israel. Both of them agreed that Israel's best interest was paramount. The conflict between God and Israel was always in the arena of what that best interest looked like. So at Kadesh Barnea, when God says, go in and take the land, and they met the spies, they said, whoa, God, whoa, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that these giants are in my best interest? And God says, yes. And Israel said, no way, Jose, no way. And that was why Israel wanted for 40 years. While the giants multiplied and grew a little stronger. And then they went in and fought them again. See, your conflict with God will always be in the area of what your best interest looks like. And if you're like I am, you and God have talked about that numerous times. I know I have with God. Come on, God, you've got to be kidding me. You're telling me that this is in my best interest? Let's review this one more time. Have you ever felt like that with God? 
Not a refrain, he says it. He does say it. Yeah. You have got to take you, you you've got to take the promises of God regarding blessing and hold them in tension with the promises of God regarding persecution, suffering, rejection, and so forth. Let me illustrate for you. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his death, said, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name, asking ye shall receive. Whatever ye ask of the Father, he will give it to you. I don't know how much later, hour, two hours later, he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, I've got a request from you. Let this cup pass from me. And God said, no. One minute Jesus says, whatever you ask, God will give it to you. The next minute Jesus says, i got a request, by the way, Father. And God says, I'm not going to give that to you. Now that's the tension you've got to maintain in your walk with God. But you don't get that, thy will be done, not mine. You don't get that in the passage of this, where the promise is. See, you're reading into that. And I would agree with you. I'm just simply saying to you, read it also into Matthew chapter 6. A guy with his hand up back here. Are you making that a statement or a question? No, I'm making that a statement. It seems to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. You can count on God for that. Yes. Well, I, was, uh, I, would, I would agree with you in it. I think that if a person wants God and trusts God, it doesn't guarantee that he won't starve to death in famine. Just, just as, a, as an analogy... Uh, the scriptures say that God's going to set his angels in charge over you to keep you from stumping your toe. But that doesn't mean you're not going to die in a car wreck or die in a, uh, a war or die of cancer. It says it's going to heal you of all your your ailments, but you may die of cancer. Okay, now, I, I, don't, I don't want to chase rabbits here. I do want to discuss all the questions that come into your minds pertaining to the principles but, I, I, you know, if we, we go chasing rabbits, we're never going to get the hunt. So, it, however you feel. I, don't want to want, I do not want to choke off conversation, but on the other hand, I don't want to uh, uh, go too far. Let me just suggest to you, by way of, of conclusion on principle number one, let's go back and review it with you again. Gentlemen, if you feel that the providing of your needs is your responsibility, you'll never be able to minister to those people. Don, you have a question. Is it correct that you said that it's not our 
That's principle number two. You're, you're too smart for me. You're, you're, you're way ahead of me. Principle number two, there is no correlation between how hard you work and how much you make. There is no correlation between how hard you work and how much you make. Now, as Don pointed out, this is merely a derivative of principle number one. If it is God who provides, then it's obvious there's no correlation between how hard you work and how much you make. The fact of the matter, however, is that this cuts contrary to the perception of most people. Most businessmen would tell you that they can out-earn their needs, and there's a direct correlation between how hard they work and how much they make. A given amount of work produces a given results, a result. I want to simply say to you that this kind of thinking does not take providence into consideration. Let's take a look at some verses. Who will take Haggai 1.6? If you can find it, would you read it? Haggai 1.6. Who's an Old Testament scholar who can find Haggai for us? Okay, good, Bob. Deuteronomy 28. 38 to 42. Okay, Hank, Deuteronomy 28, 38 to 42, and then finally, Psalm 75, 6 and 7. All right? Let's take the Haggai passage first, nice and loud. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. If you're like I am, you can identify like crazy with this verse. You sow much and reap little. You earn money and you stick it in a pocket that's got holes in it. Have you ever said to your wife, what happened to the money? Where did it all go? Have you ever felt that way? Hmm. Like I say, Haggai was reading my mail. Let's take a look at the Deuteronomy passage. 38 to 42? Yes. Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 to 42. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour them. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. Yes. Before we look at the uh, psalm passage, let me tell you a story. Uh, a stockbroker, friend of mine, who got an MBA from Stanford University, was telling me that in the business school of Stanford, they ran an experiment whereby they took the Wall Street Journal, and they opened it to the stock page, pasted it to the wall, and had a monkey throw darts at it. And on the basis of where the dart hit, they invested and found out that that was as successful as scientific analysis. 
Now, I don't know what that tells us about stockbrokers, but it certainly illustrates the point. Gentlemen, the farmer from Kansas understands the validity of this principle. There's no correlation between how hard you work and how much you make. He knows that. He'll go out there and he'll work as hard as he can and go broke in the process. See, he knows. Guys, the man working for U.S. Steel at $20 an hour, standing outside of the closed plant, heading to his new job at Burger King at minimum wage, he understands. He knows that there's no correlation between how hard he works and how much he makes. Our hypothetical friend from Ethiopia or Indonesia, he understands there's no correlation between how hard he works and how much he makes. Psalm 75, 6 and 7, who has that? See, God says promotion doesn't come from the east, west, south, north. It comes from God. He puts down one. He sets up another. God is in the business of promoting and demoting. Now, men, this is not to suggest that people are not to work hard, but rather to work for the right reasons. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.23, and you've all memorized the verse, whatever you do, do it hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men. That still stands, obviously. You see, the believer does quality work as unto the Lord because God commands it and because his credibility as an ambassador of Jesus Christ is on the line. Now, this principle affects a lot of areas of your life. Let me suggest a couple of areas in which it really is relevant. First of all, it affects planning. Let me suggest that there are two ways you can plan. You can plan according to income or you can plan according to priorities. Let's take a look at them one at a time. You plan by income. You can say, my goal this year is to make X number of dollars in the given year. And then you figure out what you've got to do, how many sales you've got to make or how many hours you've got to work or what it is you're going to do. And you go about giving yourself to the accomplishing of that financial goal on the basis of it. Or you can say, I'm going to plan according to my priorities. God's given me 168 hours a week, and I'm going to plan accordingly. Now, let's see. Now, out of that 168, how much time does God want me to give to Him? How much time to my family? How much time to sleep? How much time to my work? How much time to... And you set up your priorities accordingly. Now, let me point out to you that both of them are subjective. The conclusions you come to one are no more objective than the conclusions you come to the other. The amount of money you have elected to go after in a given year is as subjective a decision as the amount of time you're going to spend with your wife or with God or working or whatever. Both of them are subjective. But there's a world of difference in the conclusions you come to on the basis of how you plan. 
If you plan the first way, according to finances, my goal is to make $100,000 in 1986. And then you begin to plan accordingly. What will happen is, as you move through the year, and you find that you are not meeting your goal, then you will begin to sacrifice your other priorities in order to do it. You're in real estate. You say to yourself, I've got to make $60,000 this year. It's the month of December. You're only halfway there, if you can believe it, in terms of commissions. Halfway. And so what happens? You begin to spend more and more time trying to sell those houses or those businesses or whatever it is you're doing. And less time given to the family, less time given to the kids, less time given to church. Can't make it to church this Sunday, I'm sorry. I've got to go show my customers this house. And, and all of the priorities begin to fall away to the side as you move in the direction of meeting your goals. And if you believe that there's a correlation between how hard you work and how much you make, that's exactly where you're going to find yourself. The marketplace will dictate your level of commitment to Jesus Christ. Let me say it to you again. If you believe that there's a correlation between how hard you work and how much you make, the marketplace will dictate the level of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Because when you're not meeting your financial expectations, then you simply pour more time into the accomplishing of your financial goals. Let me give another illustration, or another way in which it will dictate your level of commitment to Jesus Christ. Let's say you're working for a company. Gail talked about IBM. Let's say you're an IBM salesman, or whatever company you happen to be in. The boss calls you in and he says something like this to you. He says, Joe, you've got a bright future with our company. You're the kind of man we're looking for. Sky's the limit. But you've got to understand something. We don't want you bringing your Jesus stuff into the company. Now, I don't care if you go to church, I don't care if you read your Bible, I don't care if you pray. But when you're with us in this company, keep your religion outside of things. And I want to say it to you again, and I'm not stuttering. If you bring Jesus into your business, you're through. Are we communicating? And men, if you believe there's a correlation between how hard you work and how much you make, if you believe that you work in order to earn a living, I'm here to tell you that that statement by your boss is going to affect your level of commitment to Jesus Christ in the context of your vocation. Any questions or comments on this? Tell them, I'm sorry, I don't work on that basis. 
What do you re- how do you respond to a boss who says, I want you to produce X amount? I think that's a judgment call in your part as to how you want to handle that. That gets in the area of, uh, of truthfulness, as Gail was talking about it. Yeah, You could say to him, I don't work on the basis of that, but you know when you say that he hasn't got the foggiest idea what it is you're trying to communicate to him. And how you're going to handle that, I think, is just a judgment call. Yes? What should the new executive do when the uh, boss says no evangelism and no Jesus in the office? You said it would affect his uh, his goals and so forth. What should the executive do when the boss says no evangelism, no Jesus in the office? Again, I think that's between the executive and God. I can't tell you what he ought to do. I, I tell you this. I was living with a guy who was a teacher. He and I were, we were both single at the time. We were both teaching, as a matter of fact, at the time. And uh, he was teaching at a public school. And uh, what he would do is he would put on the blackboard every morning for his class, these were junior high kids, he put famous sayings. For example, he put up there, know thyself. And then he would say, now who said that? And the class would guess. And uh, then he would talk about what it meant. And they'd have maybe a 15, 20-minute discussion at the beginning of every day on these famous sayings. And every so often, oh, maybe once every other week or so, he put a statement like, you must be born again. And who said it? And he was talking about it and discussing it. And he was doing a little reaping there in the, in the, in the school. And people were coming to Christ and... And, and then the kids would go back and say, you know, at school I met Jesus today. And then the word got to the principal, and the principal called this buddy into the office. His name was Larry, and said, Larry, you know, I, I know where you're coming from regarding your religion, but you can't bring it into the classroom. Next time you bring it into the classroom, you're through. Larry says, I understand. So he put another verse in the scripture on the board, and this time he led a young Jewish boy to Christ. And the fur hit the fan. <laughs> and I remember one day he came home and he says, I just got fired. That was his. You see, you see, gentlemen, that's exactly what Peter and James and John were told in the book of Acts. Don't mention it again. And their response was, I hear you, but I've got to obey God rather than man. Now, how you put that into practice is between you and God. I cannot tell you that if you don't witness that everything that moves, you're less than what God wants you to be. <laughs> That's between you and God. But I'm simply saying to you that Jesus said he promised you that you would suffer persecution and rejection for the sake of the gospel. You can count on that, he said. And the principle I'm laying out is that if you believe that you work to earn a living and there's a correlation between how hard you work and how much you make, you're never going to be able to integrate your commitment to Christ with your vocation. You will eventually be intimidated and stopped by it.
Let's, let's take a break here. I, I noticed it's 2.30. And uh, Gordon, how long do you want to take a break? 15. 15, and we'll come back, entertain questions, go on from here as we move, all right? <laughs>